Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Well, gentlemen, welcome. Another Friday welcome, welcome, is here. Welcome. Cheers. Salud. Cheers to all of you. Happy, happy, uh, happy hour. Summer rosé. Summer rosé. I'm I'm drinking local honey and tea, so not quite there with you. At least lie about like a shot of alcohol of some sort. No, you can't do (laughs) it? In the afternoon. Too much integrity for you? (laughs) o'clock on a Friday. He's a very integrous person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and uh, thank you. Welcome, Dave Natting. I'm sure most people who tune in here know Dave, and thank you for co-hosting us and joining us today. And uh, while we interrogate Mr. Hogan on on all the various things he's been up to, <laughs> I will remind everybody that um, this is for entertainment purposes, and that you probably shouldn't be getting investment advice from four hooligans on a Friday afternoon on a YouTube channel. So, with that said, <laughs> let's dive that in. So we can, legit. Yeah, we can talk about whatever we want. <laughs> Matt, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, us too. Us too. Tell us, um, tell us a little bit about you, um, your journey. Uh, you can go back as far as you want. Just, just let everybody know where you're from, how you got where you are. T- tell us everything. Tell you everything. Wow. <laughs> uh, my journey into the investment space starts with Mr. Dave Nodding, believe it or not. Uh, I was working as a minor league baseball mascot in Maine and read an article about a business Dave started, thought you it was to, cool. You have to use, you have to tell us the name, Matt. You can't just leave oh, yeah. it hanging out there. I, I, oh, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, you, I've got, I've, I know I've got another team. Oh, I thought, I thought you meant of your business. No, <laughs> no, I was, no, no, I was, that you can, you don't just get to drop minor league mascot and not finish the story. You that's true. I was Slugger the Sea Dog, which is a 
eight foot seal for the double A affiliate of the, of the, the Red Sox. Now they were the Marlins at the time in Portland, Maine. My job consisted of dressing in an eight foot seal costume, mostly opening car dealerships, but I did get to play in a celebrity basketball tournament. And I will tell you that trying to shoot a basketball with flippers the size of my chest <laughs> is quite an experience. So that, that was, that was my resume. Dave was running a, uh, the world's first transparent mutual fund. And he looked at that resume and said, yes, that is the man I want as my new analyst. Uh, <laughs> to be clear, this is to be you, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, what a journey. That was, that was my start. Uh, then, then, you know, I, I bounced around a little bit. I spent a long time in the ETF industry. So my big claim to fame at first was in the ETF industry. I uh, worked with Dave on a company called ETF.com, built the first ETF rating system in the world, the largest ETF conference, largest ETF media space. We eventually sold largest that ETF business. Ego. Yeah. ETF <laughs> ego. Dave, did I mention I won the Lifetime Achievement Award in ETFs this no, year? No, it's been, what, that was like four minutes. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one thing you might know about that award, actually, is that Dave hasn't won it. Um, that's one of the characteristics of that award. Um, Due to years, a decade of ineligibility, I have to say. I'm just joking. Dave, Dave, uh, most of my career has been letting Dave do work and, and trying to take credit for it. Um, after my ETF journey, uh, after I sold that business and didn't earn out with the conference company, we sold our conference unit separately. That was our biggest unit. I did two years uh, for a FTSE 100 company running conferences. I made a switch into the next big multi-trillion dollar market that's growing quickly that no one understood, that people thought was toxic, that people described as weapons of mass destruction or rat poison squared, uh, which of course is crypto. And so now I'm the CIO of, of Bitwise Asset Management, which manages somewhere north of a billion dollars in crypto assets for mostly financial advisors. Uh, some hedge funds, some institutions, some retail investors. And we're best known for creating the world's first crypto index fund. So we're kind of like the world's most conservative, boring crypto asset manager, if you can concatenate those phrases into one. That's us. I love it. Yeah, the, lower, the lower bound of boring is, uh, is still very exciting, right? <laughs> yes. the, the, Although, I will say, true. Matt, leave it to you to find the way to make crypto boring. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all have our skill, Dave. We yeah, all like, have no, but like, interestingly, like it kind of was needed. Like, I mean, you guys have been pretty successful at being the boring guys in the crypto space. Yeah, well, you're taking enough risk on an asset class that's new, nascent, emerging into the regulatory space, has a lot of security risk. It's not clear to me why you would layer on active risk or other trading risks on top of that, particularly for a beta that even though it's down 50% from its highs, is up 250% over the last year and up 3,000 plus percent over the last three years. So I do think it makes sense as a strategy. We've been doing well, just raised our Series B. We're about 40 people and growing. And uh, we think financial advisors are the next major market in the crypto space. And we're surprised that there's basically no one else focused on that market. Matt, before we get into the, the, the crypto and the use cases and all the things that are happening in that space, I actually want to go back to something that you said uh, when you decided to move forward to the most toxic, least loved, et cetera, market. There's, there's some experience, I think, that you bring to the table, maybe personality traits that have led you to like, be in there one after the other. So you had, was the ETF space considered the same thing back in the day, Dave, Matt? Like, or was it toxic, persona non grata, 
you know, the yeah. end of, of capitalism and the like? That 100% true. Yeah. Financial Times called it weapons of mass destruction. They talked about liquidity doom loops. Almost everyone's forgotten, but the U.S. Congress pulled ETF executives in front of it and had a whole interrogative session about whether ETFs were destroying American entrepreneurialism, which is a pretty big claim for a product that really just lets people get exposure to the market for a few basis points less than index mutual funds. Well, but people spoiler, did hate them. Spoiler, it didn't destroy American it, capitalism. It didn't. <laughs> Not yet. They're still making those claims. There's still, still time. There's still time. There's still time. It could happen. It, it is true that no one understood them. They called them EFTs. If you talk to someone about the creation redemption mechanisms, their eyes rolled back in their heads. It was all jargon, uh, and people were very skeptical, and for good reason. Another analogy that's similar between ETFs and crypto is that in the early days, ETFs were kind of terrible. The spreads were huge. They weren't liquid. They really weren't the lowest cost way to get exposure over the full term of an investment. But they had one or two really sort of unassailable advantages, right? They had unassailable advantages on intraday liquidity, on taxation, uh, on fidelity to what they were gaining exposure to. And those were enough to eventually overcome the limitations. Same thing's true on crypto. If you look at Bitcoin, it's a pretty janky currency. It's volatile. You can't spend it anywhere. Retailers don't accept it. But there are a few things in crypto that are sort of undeniably true about the efficiency of the technology and the new mindscapes that it opens up. And I think, you know, one question people ask me is, why do some people like me who look like me end up in the crypto industry and an equal number end up hating it? And I think it comes down to that, whether you approach it as a currency, in which case it looks highly unlikely to succeed, or if you approach it as this technological advance, in which case it seems highly unlikely for it to fail. And I think that that sort of fork in the woods explains a lot of the, the extremism in crypto. And is that the difference when you're thinking about moving on to the next business, right? When I think about, okay, you went from ETFs to, to crypto, some people might look at that and say, well, you could have gone to, I don't know, uh, marijuana or psychedelics or um, uh, who was the guest that we had on that on Monday, Mike, um, uh, uranium, right? These are just as volatile, just as crazy, you know, but somehow crypto seems to be seen as that plus something very different. What made you not go into like the theme based stuff and be as toxic as you can be and, <laughs> and rather choose this, this other space? Yeah, what, was the, what was the case? It's a great question. I think there are two things. Um, one is that I really love efficiency. It's just not like a, a dorky thing to say, but one of the things I loved about ETFs is that they were just efficient and true and right. And that aligns with crypto. It's not the same with, with cannabis or other thematics. Um, the other thing, and look, I'm not a, a, a crypto hyperbolist. Right? Crypto tends to be the land of hyperbole. I think the answer is in the messy middle. But I will say in terms of the market that it's addressing, not the market it will capture, but the market it's addressing, it's by far the largest addressable market I've ever seen a new technology attack. It's attacking finance and money. Like if you want to abstract back to what crypto is at the core, it's a way to move money and property rights over the internet. It's the biggest market the internet's ever gone after. And so, you know, one thing I learned from the ETF industry is it's great to be in a career with a strong beta to a very large size. You make all sorts of dumb mistakes and still turn out okay. Um, crypto is going after a very large market. Now we can discuss, we'll get there, what parts of the market can it really capture? But unlike, you know, marijuana or psychedelics, um, 
it's really big. It's really big. And there are very few other industries, at least in the finance space, maybe arguably AI, uh, but, but, but there are very few that are going after a market that's nearly as big as what crypto and blockchain are going after. So, so what do you, so knowing you forever, right? You love solving problems. Like, I mean, that's sort of what I associate with you. I, when I call you at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday, it's because I have a problem and I'm really good at that stuff. So, you know, what are the problems that you saw in crypto that you were trying to solve versus like, you know, Rod, you're talking about things like cannabis. A lot of those problems are regulatory, cultural, as much as anything. What are the problems you're trying to solve in crypto that you think are really interesting and that you thought were interesting back then? Because I think that a lot's changed just in the last couple of years. A lot has changed. In terms of what I personally was trying to solve? Yeah, like what, what was getting you out of bed? The two. There are really only two. Um, one was no one understood it. It like occupies this giant mind space in society. 95% of people talk about it and they have hard and concrete opinions about it. But if you actually tried to get them to explain what a blockchain is, and what space it opens up. Zero people, not zero, very few people could actually explain that. And I thought I could help in that. One of the things you know, Dave, uh, one of the things I did do in the crypto, in the ETF space was give an ETF 101 presentation about 15,000 times. And I think anchoring people on first principles of what crypto really is, what space it's attacking and what it's not, I thought I could add value there. And then the other piece um, is sort of the why Bitwise piece the biggest risk in crypto is behavioral risk with investors uh, chasing high returns, uh, dumping at the wrong time. Investors have never had access to a liquid intraday priced uh, investment that's as early as crypto. So they're not used to this volatility. And I thought Bitwise's product solution of a, like an S&P 500 of crypto was the answer to that. So educating people about what it is and then getting a product that helps them not you know, run into the shoals. Uh, was what drew me to the space. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good um, thesis, right? From from the get go, in an environment where the information that you might be garnering is relatively low in the vast potentialities, right? As you said, the addressable market is huge. The number of coins is huge. Uh, what the coins may do, from Bitcoin all the way right down the chain, how? So I'm um, taking that mindset of a well, let's let the market sort it out. And, and use sort of traditional finance methodologies is to me probably one of the most sound ways or certainly a first way that you would probably <laughs> tackle that problem. I, I, is that the way you saw it as well? As you- I, I, I completely agree. I think that's exactly right. And a, a market cap weighted index that's unconstrained and uncapped um, does that really nicely. It also means that investors for whom this is often a 1% allocation or a 2% allocation don't have to like panic every time Elon Musk tweets something. The index reacts to that, it adjusts to that. And the other thing about crypto, which is maybe um, people don't think about enough, is network effects are central to the value of crypto assets. And so market cap weighting, I think, is, 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 is closer to an optimal strategy in crypto, um, even excluding costs than it is in equities, where it's an average strategy excluding costs and only beneficial after costs are added in. In crypto, because it's all a network effects business, because size really matters, I've seen lots of active managers run afoul of getting obsessed with technology. This blockchain is slightly more efficient than that one. It doesn't matter. This one you know, is in a regulated space and has yeah. liquidity up the wazoo. Um, so I think that's the added benefit of a market cap weighted strategy. 
uh, is it captures right. that network effect? Right. The age, old, the age old VHS versus beta or the fact that we still use a QWERTY keyboard today, right? <laughs> it's the most inefficient keyboard that you could have. It's not efficient. It's not the best keyboard. It's 100% dominates all keyboards. <laughs> right. Well, because the network adoption was, hey, we're going to learn this keyboard because we have typewriters that get caught up together. I don't know if people remember what a typewriter is. But <laughs> you had to slow people down in the way they typed. And that's why that is the dominant force. It is not the best keyboard. So just like you're saying. That's amazing. If you get fundamentally based in, oh, this is Cardano's better than Ethereum, whatever. But if nobody cares, then nobody cares. And market cap is a way to express... <clears throat> Go ahead, dude. Well, I, so let me let me pull on a thread here. Okay. Yeah. I agree with you, Mike, right? The, yes, the, I get the logical chain. This is also one of the biggest problems I have with the current DeFi crypto industry, which is everybody knows this, right? Everybody understands that all that matters is how much you get in circulation and how much you get it being used and mined. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, we've ended up with this sort of massive degeneracy in what are otherwise really interesting technologies because everybody realized we got to get the coins out. We got to get the coins out. So you end up with the whole liquidity pool insanity that's taken over crypto for the last three to six months, really, because all that matters is getting the coins out. And so you end up with things like what happened with Matic, right? Where you end mm -hmm. up with poorly designed products, poorly designed liquidity pools that have fatal flaws but you're rushing to get out there because you know the network effect is all that matters. How do you balance that out? Because it doesn't seem out of the question to me, Matt, that like the thing that's going to boot whatever the 10th thing is in your top 10 out, when it shows up, it could show up simply because they were better marketers at getting people to use it, but it could be toxic technology. Yeah. Oh, it's so true, Dave. Um, first of all, I completely agree with you. Uh, and second, the index tries to screen 17. those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the index our, our index methodology tries to screen that out uh and i think it does a pretty good job but it's not going to be perfect so what are the screens we look at we have seasoning rules it's not like an asset that emerges today can enter it has to be on the market for a certain period of time we have liquidity in terms of percentage of market cap rules we have regulatory screens related to security status on the DeFi fund we have an advisory council of five of the leading vcs in the DeFi space who opine on new projects, investigate if they have real developers behind them. We look to see if there's been a technology audit of the, of the, uh, of the new asset. Uh, and all of those screens are binary. If they fail, they're not in. So like, even if you look at our Bitwise 10, which is you know, the largest crypto index fund in the world, holds the 10 largest assets. If you go to CoinMarketCap, our 10th asset is number 24. Uh, so there are a lot of these assets that you screen out um because of those risks but it's not perfect it's not perfect at all um it's impossible to be perfect and there's going to be risk and there's going to be blow-ups uh we saw one yesterday thorchain got hacked which is like i don't know it's top 50 assets not in our funds um that's going to happen it's interesting that we've kind of solved how to jumpstart network effects that's a big sort of uh interesting sort of business breakthrough uh, but it comes, it attends with all these risks. We you try mean the, liquid, the liquidity pool model. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, why don't we discuss the liquidity pool model, Dave? Why don't you uh, give everybody here an idea of what the issues have been and why it's been useful in the space? 
You, you want me to go first and then Mac can laugh at how wrong I am? That's Bring it. I love well, it. Mac, you yeah. had a shot at the You, you brought it up. You but maybe Matt, Matt is the guy. No, so, you know, if I'm trying to start, you know, excellent Dave coin, right, and all I care about is getting Dave coin out in circulation, well, what I do is I set up a liquidity pool where people can stake in something I want to trade Dave coin against. Right. And in order to do that, you have to have some reward and you pay those rewards out in more Dave coin, which nobody wants to really hold. So they trade it back for something they do want to hold, like Ethereum or cash or a stable coin or a Bitcoin or whatever. And but those coins don't go away in that process. So the coins start generating circulation, but their value is really only associated with how much they're willing to turn the knob on how much extra Dave coin you're going to get. And this is where, you know, we, our friend Corey Hofstein sort of went down this rabbit hole on Matic, right? Where, you know, the three tiered, I don't remember iron something or other. And, you know, there was a multiple coin system with a governance coin and a non-governance coin. And you end up with these sort of loops that if you're in there at exactly the right time, yes, you can generate an enormous amount of real money, but every step along the way, there's the risk that you're the greater fool right before the bottom falls out, which is, you know, what happened. Yeah, and, and, and the way they present it to is interesting. And they talk about this is how much yield you can get, right? A 23% yield. If it all works coin? perfectly. 23% <laughs> yield on Dave coin. What's that worth in real life? Right? Like, and then no, it's, it's, that's Bitcoin, Bitcoin versus so it just becomes those big, big percentage numbers seem to attract that network effect. Right. You're just pulling in the same all that behavioral um, economics, all that work Amos Tversky and uh, Danny Kahneman yeah. have done. They have really harnessed that it, for both good and bad in the crypto yeah. space, uh, which I, I find fascinating. But anything anything to add to that, Matt? Uh, just that I agree with it. It is fascinating. Uh, I think it's I think it's important. There are positives to it, but it's a huge risk. For what it's worth, I'm structurally short. Dave Coyne uh, have been for, for a number of years. Um <laughs> No, I, I agree. It's a real concern. Um, and it it it's it says something about the crypto space. There is a degree, particularly in the DeFi space, which I'm very excited about. Talk about why. But there's a degree of circularity uh, and recursiveness in there that can make it appear larger than it in fact is. That doesn't take away from some of the really exciting technological breakthroughs and things that they can do in DeFi protocols. Those are still very real. But you do have this element of fluff and nonsense around it. For what it's worth, it's been in crypto for the, for a long time. Used to be large problems with wash trading and issues like that. Um, yeah, this is this is part of the anarchic mass that is the broader crypto landscape, and it's it's very real. And I, I will add, I've said this before on this podcast, but there are also some very important use cases of understanding behavioral economics and your business model, right? So. What I brought up before are companies like uh, Helium or Akash, which require uh, for the business to make any money in the real world, it requires some sort of network effect. So Helium is just peer-to-peer networks where you place a little modem on your on the top of your second floor of your house to connect to another peer-to-peer network because somebody else is incentivized to put that little modem there, right? How do you incentivize people to create these networks, this technology that has been around for 30 years that would benefit the world if everybody did a little bit of it for, you know, a $300 piece of equipment, you're going to, you're going to incentivize them by giving them some helium coin, right? So that, that incentive then leads to more peer-to-peer networks, the growth of actual real business, and the incentive for those who, who mine the helium coins to keep them, 
which I, I do find in that community, right? So there are cases like that. And Akash is the same idea, but with cloud computing, right? That creates a more secure network where a single big organization does not uh, hold all of, your, all of your data and, and, and you can kind of separate it as a more like a torrent style approach to, to cloud computing, right? So within all that chaos and madness, you, you see these gems where you're like, aha, this is a fantastic use case mm-hmm. between for behavioral finance, the coin and the, the crypto industry and, um, and real world economics, right? So it's just a matter of finding them. I love that so much. Yeah, you found way to economically incent a decentralized network, which has been a challenge for a long time. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's completely true. Just need to separate the gems from some of the other projects. Yeah. And so um, as, as you're going on this journey in, in crypto land, have you noticed any sort of um, corollaries that remind you of your journey in ETF land? And I mean, we, I think we've covered one or two of them, but are there any others that stand out as, hey, I know I'm on the right track because of X, Y, Z, you know, that, that you, you feel are similar or not? Has this been a really kind of unique journey? That's Let me, let me, let me think about that for a minute. Uh, there's certainly a few. You know, one... I really do think I, I got to this point with ETFs where I felt like if someone gave me four minutes, I could explain to them why ETFs had a manifest destiny and would eventually take over the mutual fund space. It took me a couple of years to get to that point, but I felt like I got to that point eventually. I think the same thing is true in crypto and blockchain. I think if I have five minutes, I can get almost everyone on board from this is an interesting thing that will have a major view in the future. And I think that's important because if you can if you can boil something down to a pretty simple level and people sort of understand and get it, um, I think I think I think that gives me confidence that there's something real there. Um, so that's 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 one that I think a lot about, and we see similar things that we've seen before. I mean, uh, you know, ETFs went through through waves of adoption by different groups of people. Crypto is going through waves of adoption by different groups of people. Uh, you see people who are very skeptical come into the into the light. And you also see persistent skepticism throughout. There's still plenty of people who hate ETFs and think they're going to destroy the world. Let, let uh, and me, I think that will be true in crypto can, too. Can I can I answer the question better? Because I think you missed the key <laughs> one, right? Which is if I mean if what we care about here as people who are marketing and selling products and stuff, right? Which presumably you are, what you care about is where's that money coming from? Where is the people who are going to invest in this? It's following exactly the same arc that ETFs start started with, which is you start really as sort of an institutional experiment. Then you have the sort of rampant, rabid early adoption by weirdos and freaks, which is totally what happened in the <laughs> ETF market until about 2004, 2005, at which point financial advisors got the message. And along, you know, with the financial advisors getting the message, the rest of the institutions realized they no longer had cover to put money places it didn't belong, i.e. hedge funds that were charging two and 20, et cetera, et cetera, right? And all along the way, they were yelled at by regulators and skeptics who said, this is destroying the world. It's never going to go anywhere. It's a regulatory nightmare. But then this sort of this three-part system of retail advised and institutional all ends up coming together, at which point it becomes unstoppable, which I would argue is the global financial crisis for ETFs, right? The survival of ETFs and the thriving of them in 2009 and 10 is the reason that it is now an unstoppable force. I don't think crypto's quite had that moment yet, but I just look at my own websites and I see the amount of traffic we get to anything related to the crypto channel we run. 
it's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So it's clear that advisors are now very focused on this space. So it just feels like we're following the exact same mark. So, so is that is that the reason uh, why you've followed sort of the same tactics, Mac, in going after like the advisor space as the next targeted space? It seems to fit into Dave's narrative almost perfectly, right? If you think about the narrative of adoption that Dave laid out with ETFs and and the way you have looked at Bitwise Investments and the partnership with LPL and some of the things you're doing to really nurture the the advisor awareness and understanding so that in turn, I guess they can um, pass that on to the client assets. Is that is that sort of the same thing? And then I'm not supposed to ask two questions, but I'll put one on the end of that. Are you going to bring your conference expertise to bear at some point in that and start to do some sort of advisor crypto conference like you did with ETF so successfully? Yeah, I love it. Yes, it's part of the reason. I mean, we were we, a lot of us in at Bitwise come from the ETF industry. I would say probably 70% of the people at Bitwise come from the ETF industry. And there's been a lot of crossover. And that is one of the reasons. The other reason was, and I still don't understand, it's underpenetrated. You have a huge number of crypto companies focused on self-directed investors, Coinbase, Kraken, etc. Self-directed investors don't have any money. So it's curious that there's this giant ecosystem focused on them. You also have VCs focused on true institutions, pensions, endowments, etc. A lot of crypto VCs. No one was talking to financial advisors who control as much money as those largest institutions. They just need different service. Uh, they need a distribution team. They need research. They need webinars. It's a, it's a different market. I think part of it is venture capitalists haven't discovered the advisor market. They don't yeah. know how large it is. Uh, and so we were uniquely positioned to 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 move into that market. But I think they need that one thing you missed that the advisors need is they need access. They need access that's on their platform. Yeah. yeah. You got to navigate all of the platform access points. So you get to the advisor and the advisor says, Oh yeah, I want to do that. And then you're like, okay, so what firm are you with? And let me start on that process. And maybe it's, you can buy it in a year. It's so huge. And you need people who are focused exclusively on that. I agree. We've been working, you know, get on the Orion platform for years. Uh, and you make progress. We we just got onto the LPL platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, venture capitalists never probably heard of LPL, uh, but it's eighteen thousand advisors and a trillion dollars of assets. Uh, but I agree, you need all of those steps, uh, and I think it's pretty unique. Uh, on the event stuff, of course, I love events. Uh, <laughs> we're we're doing some around it now. I, I'm doing an event with Dave called Exchange, focused on the ETF space. I'm also um, an advisor to a company called Blockworks which is probably the leading provider of financial professional conferences. Uh, they just launched a big DeFi conference for next year. They do a number of events. So I, I keep my my nose in that game. I love it. Got it. And, and so on your on your site, just since we're, we're on the advisor um, angle, what is what are some of the top sort of uh, pieces that people should read? Because you've got a bunch of uh, resources on the site, but what what's sort of if someone's looking at this and saying, yeah, okay, fine. I've been beaten over the head. Where should I start? Where, where, where is the, um, in Bitwise, because it, it's substantial, the amount of information that you provide and, and the assistance that you're nurturing for advisors to educate themselves on this, this very frontier asset class. So where, where should they start there? What, what, what's the best place to go and Great question. The first one's not even on our site. I was fortunate to write the CFA Institute's Guide to Bitcoin, Blockchain, and Crypto, uh, which published in January. So if you Google CFA Crypto, uh, you can find that piece. It's about a 64-page introduction to the space. 
Uh, I think it's one of the better ones. Dave and I wrote the guide to ETFs in 2015. So I was glad to publish that. Uh, the other on the resources page, you can sign up and you'll get a monthly note from me uh, that's email only, which I think is pretty helpful. Uh, we also have a paper on crypto's role in a portfolio, which I think is is pretty good and emphasizes uh, something that is dramatically overlooked in crypto, which is the importance of rebalancing. Rebalancing in crypto can transform Reach. crypto from a volatile asset to a big portfolio contributor. Um, so say, I start there. Yeah. Say, say more. Would you want to just give them the highlights on that? Because I think you know people do misunderstand adding a highly volatile asset to a portfolio that's non-correlated will improve the risk-adjusted returns of the portfolio. So can you say a bit more about the that that's you... exactly right. The the real unique thing about crypto as an asset, if you abstract away all the noise, is it has high potential returns, low correlation, and daily liquidity, which is not something that you typically get. Typically high returns, low correlation, you're locked up for 7 years in an early stage VC fund. Once you get liquidity, you can rebalance and if you rebalance a highly volatile, non-correlated asset, as long as you assume it's not going to go to zero, which a bunch of people in crypto won't make that assumption, but if you assume that, um, yeah, it has a dramatic impact. You're harvesting that volatility. Uh, and it, the, the history of it is, you know, if you add 2.5% Bitcoin to a, a 60-40 portfolio, there's never been a three-year period where it didn't add to the cumulative and risk-adjusted returns. On average, over that three-year period, it boosts the Sharpe ratio by about 50%, uh, which is incredible. And it contributes about maybe 33% of the portfolio's returns on average from a 2.5% allocation. But the rebalancing tolerance is critical. Without a rebalancing tolerance, it leads to dramatic increases in max drawdown. Uh, the Sharpe ratio doesn't, doesn't even budge, uh, and it makes the portfolio much more volatile. So that's, let, that's let really me, critical. Wait. Let, let me push back on that a little bit, because to me, that is one of the critical problems with advisor adoption right now is that most advisors are used to maybe doing a quarterly rebalance, which is really pretty insufficient based on your own math, which you were not lucky, nice enough to share with me when you were doing it. Like quarterly rebalance doesn't cut it in crypto, right? You got to okay. either have to be triggered or it has to be a lot more frequent than that. But that puts the advisor in this terrible box, because like Mike was saying, you don't get to just make that as a bucket trade for 400 of your clients, right? If you were going to actually do that, say with your fund or with a direct crypto allocation, like that's an operational nightmare. And I know there's some folks out there like on ramp that are trying to solve yep. some of the problems, mm -hmm. but um, you know, is the, is this actually viable as a portfolio asset for most folks absent some sort of bridging mechanism, like an ETF, like direct custody, something like that? Well, an ETF will be a great thing. Uh, in the interim, you have these OTC traded trusts, which can trade at premiums and discounts, which are sort of like wrinkly ETFs. Um, you know, the, the, the short answer, Dave, quarterly actually does, at least on a historical basis, quarterly is sufficient. It's annual or semi-annual rebalancing that's maybe not rapid enough. But I agree that that rebalancing piece is a challenge for advisors uh, if you're dealing with private investments and you have to send 400 wires every quarter, like no one's going to do that. Um, it's part of the reasons we need better access vehicles. For what it's worth, it's part of the reasons people buy funds like GBTC or BITW, despite and understanding the premium and discount issue, because the rebalancing capability can overwhelm that risk. And so a lot of people think people buy those naively. 
most advisors fully understand the premium discount risks that attend those products, but the ease of use, the ease of reporting, the ease of charging fees, the ease of rebalancing more than compensates for the necessary hair on those. Um, so, so I think it's I think it's positive. The other thing I'd say for advisors, if you ask your clients, most of them are buying crypto anyway. Uh, so right. You, you might. I think that's my it. biggest my biggest point is you have a fiduciary responsibility not just on the assets that you hold for your clients, but you also have to know what they're holding elsewhere and advise them on that. And if you're the, the advisors that I've heard say, oh, it's you know it's going to go to zero, it's garbage, it's not worth it. Those guys talk to me and say, well, how do I buy off outside of my brokerage account? <laughs> right. And then I have to be like, oh, my God, like this is not I talk to some, I, it, you're going to blow yourself up. Like there's so many ways that that can go wrong, but they're doing it anyway. Right. So then I don't give them advice and then they go and blow themselves up and put in way more than they should. Yeah. I think advisors who recognize the risk to their clients retirement needs, recognize the potential asymmetric upside and can provide liquidity, need to act. You just can't sit there on the sidelines anymore. You're doing a disservice to investors. And, and by the way, like, let's, just, let's assume that it, it, it has a possibility of going to zero. You know, one to 2% allocation isn't going to be the end of it all. And as we know from some work that we've done, even on the way down with high volatility, if you're rebalancing enough, you're scraping and you're harvesting volatility premium while it's going flat to up that might offset a total loss of 2% down the line, down the road, right? So there's, there's, these are the things. That's this is the exactly professional right. asset management that are required. So without any opinion, what, you, you just can't ignore access to an asset class like this. And, and on, on that note, Dave, what have you guys, because you mentioned that you, you guys are publishing some crypto research and whatnot, and you've worked with Matt. So what have you guys got that, that investor advisors, investment advisors should be looking at? Is there anything that's well, so, complementary yeah. to what Matt mentioned and that would help advisors continue to educate themselves? Yeah. For the most part, you know, we're in the business of providing investment information to advisors, helping them down their research journey, whatever it is. So we stood up a crypto channel and we're discussing all of these things, you know, article by article. So it's much more, you know, day-to-day -day news flow, but, you know, in that channel, you'll find articles about how to access these things and Matt's so-called wrinkly ETFs and, and uh, you know, yeah. the tax implications and, you know, how advisors should be thinking about DeFi. And so, you know, we're covering all of those bases and I think you'll see us continue to grow that as advisor adoption continues. But like we did that not because we're trying to get ahead of the game, but because of demand, like, we, right, surveyed, right. we did a survey with Bitwise over the last couple of years and like advisors want this content, right? And yeah. while, you know, the name of our site may be ETF Trends and we don't necessarily have the non-wrinkly version of those ETFs trading yet, uh, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the tax implications for a second, because uh, those are interesting. Everybody seems to be confused. Um, what's, what are the tax implications and is there any difference between holding them outright and having to report and the type of slips that your fund would give out? Well, uh, the first thing people should know about crypto and taxes is if you buy crypto and it goes up, you have to pay taxes. That's that's uh, surprising that many people think they live outside of the tax royal, uh, but that's not true. The Upon IRS, sale or is it marked yearly um, like in the 60-40 rule in futures? Great, great question. Uh, the, crypto is taxed as property, which means effectively it's taxed like equity. Uh, if you hold it for more than a year, it's long-term capital gains. It's taxed only on sale. Uh, it's not taxed like gold, which is taxed as a collectible, even though people call Bitcoin digital gold. 
it's not taxed like futures and mark to market unless you're buying crypto futures, in which case it is. Uh, but traditional crypto assets are taxed as property. The two wrinkly bits, uh, wrinkly seems to be my word today, Dave. Uh, um, the two, the two wrinkly bits are, um, there's a little bit of confusion around tax loss harvesting and a little bit of lack of clarity, uh, about whether you have to have a 30 day, uh, delay when you harvest taxes. Uh, there's, there's debates around that. And there's some confusion around airdrops and hard forks. The way we handle it, um, for our investors, we issue a K1. We're very proud. We've always gotten our K1s out in February or March. It's an extraordinary achievement. Um, and so we make it easy for them to file taxes on it, make it very simple. Um, but there, there is more confusion than there should be. Mostly they're taxing stocks. Yeah, but Got isn't it. the wash sale thing, like the, the issue here is, is wash sales, right? So you can sell your Bitcoin down a bunch and then theoretically buy it back the next day and, and get the reset on that basis, book the loss now, offset it against your you know ARKK that went up a bunch, whatever. Um, I get that it's there's no positive ruling on it, but there also hasn't been a negative ruling on that. And that is currently how property is treated. So are you actually concerned about an IRS clawback or is this just mostly an issue that this could change any time, which that I agree with. I think it could change any time, but it's hard for me to see how they can simply say, well, Bitcoin is a different kind of property. So you have a 30 day window. You still have the sham transaction issue, which is true in, throughout the tax code. You can't make a transaction for the purpose of avoiding taxes explicitly with no economic gain. That's fraud. That has nothing to do with what asset it is you're trading. No, that, you have it right, Dave. There's just risk and uncertainty in the future, right? Because from an outside perspective, you'd be surprised that you can do that sort of uh, non-30-day uh, harvesting, right? It doesn't, doesn't make sense from a first principles perspective, even though I agree that's how the tax law lines up. So- you know, I'm not a tax professional. I just think people should be careful about that and careful about how much they they rest on that understanding. Right. But if you are somebody who's like one of these crypto degenerates who's out there day trading Bitcoin all day, it it significantly changes how your taxes work. Right. You can't just plunk those transactions into QuickBooks and call it a day like they no. are fundamentally treated differently in terms of how you deal with the gains and losses. That is definitely true. That is definitely true. I will say. The IRS's FAQ on crypto taxation is the best thing they've ever written. It's actually shockingly clear. Uh, it's even kind of clever and cute. Um, I, 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 I mean it. Of every, every piece of IRS writing in all, of all time, the FAQ on crypto is remarkably good. I dare say nobody's ever said that the IRS has written something clever and cute in their entire. There's some, there's some like twenty-four-year-old. I'm, I'm legitimately going to read that's this over news, the weekend. That's a you whole. Should. That's a new string of words. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to my daughter. <laughs> Never been said again. Millions of monkeys couldn't have come up with that. Exactly. It is true. It is true. And, and is this is this because it just provides? Uh, it covers most of the major loopholes and 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 the clarity that is required because that would be news to me. It doesn't, it doesn't cover the nuances. It doesn't cover things like airdrops and hard forks and exactly how those should be handled. And those are very complex, right? What if there's an airdrop, but you never claim it? Did you actually receive that value? Should you have to pay taxes on it? It doesn't get into those things. But in terms of the basics, in terms of 98% of the tax uh, rules that impact people investing in crypto, someone who buys Bitcoin and Ethereum and sells them a year later, uh, it is crystal clear about that. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Got to take a look at that. Yeah. The tax conversations already got me a little bit uh, sleepy. 
<laughs> Have another drink, Mike. There you go. There well, you go. Well, don't can worry. We stop like, talking about tax for a minute. We can. We, we can feel out. Let's talk about the fact that Dave called something. you a crypto trade. Dave trading degenerate. How about that? He was looking <laughs> I, straight at you. I wasn't looking I, at Mike. I didn't. You were looking respond at me. because I, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever that means. I. <laughs> Degeneracy. Not familiar. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so let's so, talk about the uh, the risks here. Uh, just generally, like you said, there's a crypto world that believes people that talk about crypto that believes it's going to go to zero, mm-hmm. right? And so, you're as as time goes by, and uh, one would have expected ETFs to be approved by the regulators and governments back. It's it just time keeps going by, and we don't see any movement in the United States, the most powerful nation on the planet, that is. Mm-hmm that also has uh, the most powerful currency on the planet. Where do we see these dynamics going and are are we starting to falter a little bit? Mm, That's a fun question. I think the ETF question, I'm not actually concerned with the pace of progress in ETF land. So there are people in crypto who have a view that the SEC hasn't approved a Bitcoin ETF because the Fed is worried about Bitcoin taking over for the dollar. I think those people are a little self-delusional. Bitcoin is a long way from replacing the dollar. And I don't think there's like an explicit don't approve an ETF. Dave and I have lived through ETF approvals forever. They take forever in the US. Canada is always ahead of us by two years. That's been true since the founding of an ETF. It's still true today. Bonds took like four and a half years to get approved. Non-transparent active, active. seven years. Exactly. Which one? Right. Non-transparent, non-transparent active. active. Non-transparent active, which is just like an active fund. Um, you know, we've we've had, I think it's 16 meetings with the SEC over the last 14 months, and we don't even have an ETF filing right now. Uh, they're extremely engaged. They're asking very good questions. I think we're close. I think we will get there. So I'm not worried about the ETF specifically. I do think we will get over that hump. I will say there is a broad push right now, right now, by which I mean this moment from every major US regulatory agency to develop new standards around crypto regulation. And I think those standards are going to have a big impact on the stablecoin market. I think they're gonna have a big impact on part of the DeFi market. I think they're gonna be very positive for parts of the crypto market and very negative for other parts of the crypto market. Um, But regulatory risk and how that regulation breaks over the next six months is going to determine whether you know, we're in a generational bull market in crypto or whether the, the industry faces real challenges. So outside of the ETF, I think there are big regulatory things to discuss. Can we unpack that a little bit? Mm-hmm. What are those things that like, that are the big pain points for them? Well, so I, th- I think they're very worried about stable coins, right? Stable coins are, uh, are, are crypto representations of dollars is one way to think of them. Uh, and there are varying qualities of stablecoin providers. The largest is unfortunately the worst quality, Tether. Um, and these are large, 50, 60, 70 billion, $100 billion. Um, and there's concern both about whether there's systemic risk there from those assets, say owning commercial paper and unraveling and having to dump that paper and impacting the market. Uh, and they're just generalized concerns about how should these private versions of the dollar be regulated? Um, and they form an an integral part of the crypto market, right? They are where people withdraw from crypto's volatility to hold money in a stable asset. 
um, and they provide sort of the liquidity that interweaves it all. So uh, I think regulators are going to, I don't know what they're going to do in that space, but I think it's going to change. My guess is it changes for the better. Like I actually think the removal of poorly regulated stable coins removes a major risk in the crypto market uh, and a risk that could cause violent deleveraging in the DeFi space if it went wrong. So I'm in favor of it, but I do think it'll be, I think it'll be a, 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 a painful journey. I think they could overreach. I think there's risk there. But right. that implies, like, sorry, I got to call a little BS on that. That implies that what we what we get for regulation is this sort of clear regulation about what a what a stable coin has to be to be okay, and that that is allowed to then go do the things that stable coins are currently doing, which is largely working in liquidity pools. That's the primary use case for a lot of them, right? They're parking places for movement of liquidity in other crypto ecosystems. Gensler's comments about the swaps markets, about the derivatives markets the other day was the clearest negative indicator I have heard from the SEC yet that they believe they have regulatory over. The way I interpreted what he said was, hey, you're trading a swap against Tesla at FTX in Germany. You are regulated by the U.S. because Tesla is U.S. listed stock. So if yeah. you're running a derivative against it, we get the call. That was a that was an eye opener for me. Well, uh, yeah. So, so, so to be clear, Dave, I was just saying that I think their first focus is going to be on the stablecoin market. I think their second focus is what you're talking about. Derivative. And um, I don't think there's a pathway for those synthetic stocks in their current iteration to survive. I, th I think regulators are going to make that. It, it's such a clear intrusion on their regulatory footprint, right? There are synthetic versions of oil that trade. Uh, and they aren't registered with the CFTC. I just don't think that that unfinished circle is going to stay unfinished. I don't think it means that there isn't something that emerges out of that that's interesting and important. I mean, for to step back for a second, FTX created a way to trade U.S. stocks 24-7, 365 and have them settle instantaneously. Which is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. It's We're all in. Like, let's just make that our market system and I'm done. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> I, I think we need to pause and point that out, that New yeah. York had hundreds of years to figure it out, and they're still trading six and a half hours a day, five days a week, some weeks. Um, so <laughs> we should give them a lot of credit for that. But I do think it's going to have to evolve to a regulatory pathway. I think it's really interesting for what it's worth that, uh, that FTX was able to close a $900 million venture round amidst this regulatory uncertainty. Um, I think that's an interesting point that I'm still working around in my mind. Well, I think what we're seeing, as always, is the, the, the ecosystem in the crypto space has allowed entrepreneurship to, be, to just grow un, untethered, right? So you are, what you end up getting is a bunch of signals of, hey, world, this is how it should be, right? Yeah. And then the regulators have to come in and be like, okay, we, we have to change, but let's do it in a way that we can regulate. And, and possibly, I mean, what's all these stable coins... We're out of necessity. We're out of people wanting to get out of the, of the volatility of crypto, park it, move it from one place to the next. And you could choose to go in FTX and hold your USD or you can choose Tether. But when you try to transfer it from FTX to Kraken, one will take seven days and you might not get your money and the other one takes 20 minutes, right? And so it, it, it's what happens when governments and the US government creates a US government crypto coin that has all the same facilities 
but actually has some sort of regulation and backing that can transfer in 20 minutes, all of a sudden, I think naturally you're going to see people moving towards the more certain of the two. Um, I'm assuming that most of the new adopters aren't terrified of, you know, the government spying on you and all that stuff. Right? <laughs> so just assuming that, the, that it's regular people wanting to be in that space, they will likely choose a regulated, efficient oh. coin. As long a as non-regulated people will use it, yeah. like, I mean, that's the thing that's slightly scary about the Chinese central bank digital currency is that it is it is explicitly being designed as a command and control vehicle for the CCP. It is not yeah. really designed to solve the entrepreneurial problems of the crypto class. <laughs> people are going to use it like crazy because it will be very convenient because it will tie into everything else in their financial world. The thing I worry about in the, with a U.S. CBDC would be the same thing. It's like. If they launch one, everyone will use it almost regardless of what's under the hood. We might talk about the hair that's growing on it, but people, if it's convenient, if I can move it in and out of my Visa account, my bank account, and then I can use it to go do some crypto fund thing, and then I can pay my you know landlord with it, it'll just be 100% adoption regardless of what they decide to bake into it that's awful. That's what I worry about. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I mean, my, my biggest concern about the U.S. is they're going to be too slow. Mm-hmm. They're going to get passed by on this um, out of reticence. Uh, and they're going to be too careful because, you know, obviously a, a federal stable coin uh, is a severe threat to traditional banking systems, depending on how it's designed. And so I think I think the U.S. is going to move slow, but I, I think it's inevitable. I think everything's moving that way. There's no way it, it doesn't end up in that place. Yeah, I mean, like, what, how does the euro dollar market work, right? Like you have a bunch of banks that are creating dollars out of nowhere by lending them out, right? There's. There's, you can also regulate another organize, other group of people that are using your dollars in yeah. ways that are useful to the world and to them, right? Um, so it might not just be one or the other. It might be the, the same thing as we see globally today. I agree. I, I was sad the U.S. didn't jump on board the, the Libra Diem train. Mm. I thought that was the best single way to extend the U.S. dollar's dominance as the world's currency, uh, and we just blew it. Um, uh, which is which is which is a shame. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the, it really is the, the the derivative markets that's driving a lot of this uh, bull market, the demand, the liquidity, and you know, one of the use cases is the fact that the rest of the world can't trade in New York time when they want to get access to Apple and Tesla, right? So you're they're providing a service to the world that wants to grow their wealth and participate in in the best technologies in the world when they. They're too small to go to a broker dealer in India, get them to pay attention, open up an account and be able to trade what they want at the time that they want. Right. So this it, it, it does answer a question, it does create some use cases that we're going to have to grapple with and and deal with. Um, well, Rod, I, I see Rod, no other me, way. Let me ask you, Rod, like. I agree. I think the derivative markets are the most interesting thing in crypto right now. And I think they are driving an enormous amount of what we're seeing. But at the same time, can you just strip all that away and say, actually, all this is, is access to ridiculous amounts of leverage? Because that's what I see when I start peeling back that onion. It's like, it's not that trading futures this way is so much better and, you know, giving you access to betas you could never do derivatives against on the CME. It's that you can get 100x leverage without really trying very hard. Well, okay. So there's, if you look at the actual numbers and Matt, maybe you know more than I do on this. The actual 100 times levered guys represent like less than 1% of the ecosystem, yeah. right? So, Dave, let's not exaggerate. Come on. 
Okay. I think 1% of the system, then they're 100% of the notional. That's the whole problem. Uh, well, well hold, they're mo- okay. let's, let's take, a, take a second. Let's take it back. I think the most, the, the use cases for the derivatives market oftentimes aren't, aren't leveraged. They're just, if you're going to choose to to trade Bitcoin straight up or trade the perpetual, the perpetual is more liquid. Yeah. It settles instantly. You don't have to wait for. So there's, it's like a second layer, right? That becomes a way to get exposure to those markets. So it's not as expl- as massively explosive as, as one might assume, but certainly some regulation would probably help, right? I mean, we need to get in there and just say that up with the margin calls. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's well, the other thing. The self-clearing nature of the margin calls is kind of interesting. But on this, I want to get I want to I want to go to lightning, the lightning network and the adoption that's happening there, too, in that layer of payments and, and being maybe more of a threat to the sort of the dollar dominance in everyday payments. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I certainly think I think. Uh, I think there are two ways that crypto can penetrate the traditional payment use space, or maybe three ways. Lightning is a good example. So the Lightning Network allows you to to throughput a lot more transactions much more efficiently than you can if you have to write everyone to the blockchain. So it brings makes Bitcoin more functional uh, as a cryptocurrency. And there's a lot of uh, sort of layer two side chains that do this for, for other assets as well. Um, I do expect Bitcoin to become more of a transactional currency on the margin, I think you already see it tackling places where traditional fiat currencies are truly atrocious, uh, like remittances or in certain capital controlled markets. Uh, over time, as the volatility declines, as things like lightning make it more usable, I suspect it will eat into more and more of those markets. And I think there's a non-zero chance uh, that over politicization of fiat currencies causes the world to want a an apolitical currency and you can see a step function increase in interest in bitcoin uh for what's worth i don't think it has to penetrate any of those use cases to be a phenomenal investment uh but i think those are gravy on top and i think it's indicative of the level of innovation you know the speed at which this is being adopted and the speed with which new technologies are being built is really uh almost it's kind of breathtaking uh, and probably going to accelerate as more VC money comes into the space. Oh, yeah. Just like a look at the Overton window of sort of the general zeitgeist of 12 months ago to today. I, it, it's breathtaking yeah. how much this has moved from, you know, uh, if you're an advisor, an allocator, or an individual who's talking about this asset class 12 months ago, July 2020. You were, you were a lunatic. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah. And now, yeah. and now you're one of those guys who's a little on the edge. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which is, is very right. much like that ETF sort of journey. Yeah, as no, well. it's like you're right. I mean, it is the Overton window shifting what is acceptable behavior, and all of a sudden, yeah. it's like, well, MicroStrategy straight down the middle. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't have ten percent MicroStrategy. What's going on, buddy? I will tell you, it's it's so true. The the percentage of advisors who ask us about will it go to zero has vanished over the last year. And the flip side of that is the average allocation of a Bitwise client, I think has gone up from about a percent to two and a half percent of their portfolio because that binary risk has disappeared. So I think that is a very real material change. And I think it's driven by a very real and material uh, diminution of these binary risks. Uh, crypto really did live by a thread for many, many years uh, at, at a level that many people don't understand. Uh, I could have it could have gone to zero 
almost instantly for the first eight or nine years of its existence. And it, and it didn't. Uh, and I do think we're past that point now. And is that partly to do with the DeFi space, the, the different crypto coins and that general ecosystem that is kind of creating different use cases and opening people's eyes to, to the new technology? I think that that's definitely a piece of it. It's gotten a, a second story through DeFi uh, and things like Uniswap, which I think is the greatest entrepreneurial story of the past 10 years. Um, but even more basically, I'll tell you a story about Bitwise. Bitwise was an early startup. It was backed by some of the leading venture capital firms in the world. You know, Vinod Kosla and Naval were invested, uh, Kraft Ventures, Catalyst, General Catalyst. We couldn't get a bank account to make payroll because there were no banks that would provide payroll services to anyone involved in the crypto space. This was 2017. Uh, at the time, there was one bank who would do it in the whole nation. Uh, when I talk about like crypto living by a string, that's the kind of example I mean. Uh, today, you know, dozens of banks, anyone will do it. Uh, but even four years ago, an asset management company backed by blue chip venture capitalists with people with 20 years of experience in financial services couldn't pay payroll uh, to provide funds through Wilson Sonsini as the lawyer. I mean, it's it's insane uh, how... The fertilizer wasn't there. Exactly. It's insane. It's insane. But all so that... Were, were, were you like a construction site on Friday with the envelopes full of cash for everybody? Or what did you do? Everybody got a USB card? I, that's right. <laughs> I'm reminded of my days working on the farm and going to the labor pool, picking up all the labor and then having to pay them at the end of the day with the cash. It's so true. It was... It was uh, it was it was brutal. It was brutal. We had to call in a bunch of big favors in order to get a bank account. It was amazing. amazing. Um, so, that's all where are you seeing flows in Bitwise? You've got a you got a suite of products, mm -hmm. um, and, and so where are you seeing the general <laughs> emphasis of interest, if you will? And maybe where do you where do you think that that if that's not the right place to be, where do you think the next layer of interest would be, or what are you seeing now, and what do you think might be the the future area of opportunity? Yeah, sure. Uh, so most of our assets are in our large cap index fund, the Bitwise 10, because most of our clients are financial advisors who just want beta exposure to the space. I will say that our DeFi index fund, which launched in February, uh, was one of, was was much faster out of the gate to grow. We pulled in more than $100 million in a private placement DeFi fund uh, in the first six weeks it was on the market, which is which is very fast for a private fund. By comparison, it took three years for our index fund to get its first $100 million. Um, uh, it, in terms of, I mean, most of my money is invested in our index fund. I'm really personally excited about ETH. I think ETH is the, uh, is the crypto asset of the summer and maybe of, of 2021. Um, and so if I were an advisor looking outside of, of the, the large cap core, um, I think there's a lot to be said for focusing on the Ethereum space right now. It's going through a few technological upgrades, which are really big deals and really smart. Um, and I, yeah, I just think it's a phenomenal ecosystem. There, for what it's worth, they're, they're, they're more like off-piece down the road stuff I could talk about, but I, I really do love ETH right now. So let's talk about ETH and uh, why you're excited about it. Yeah, uh, three reasons. One Everything in DeFi is built on ETH. So it's literally, it's fair to think of ETH as the internet that DeFi exists on. So if you're excited about DeFi, you should be excited about ETH. Two, there are two major technological upgrades coming in the next 
next 12 months, one of which is coming August 4th, which is called EIP 1599. EIP 1599 is an upgrade to the East software. It makes it easier to use in a cool way. But the great thing it does for investors is it changes what happens to the transaction fee. Currently, when you can transact on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, the fee goes to the miner who typically sells it. After EIP 1599, the base fee will be burned. You can think of it like a stock buyback. It turns ETH into a consumable commodity like oil or gas. So in order to run DeFi on ETH, you have to burn ETH. And I just think that makes it so intuitive as an investment. I think it's going to bring a lot of institutions in. And then uh, walk me through know, that again, Matt. Sorry, before you, hmm. go to, I want to, I want to fully understand that. Yeah. So right now, if you're if you're processing a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain, right? So if you're using Uniswap and you have to write that transaction to Ethereum, you typically pay a transaction fee, right? It could be 0.01 ETH. It could be 0.02 ETH. It could be some small fraction of ETH as a tip to the miner to process your transaction. Uh, today that goes to the miner and they typically sell it because they have to pay for electricity. They have to pay for mining equipment, et cetera. After, for this, dollars. after this upgrade, uh, the miner continues to get newly minted ETH. That's the other way they're compensated, the same way Bitcoin miners do. But this transaction fee, instead of going to the miner, the base fee is burned or destroyed forever. It's like you're putting gas into the ETH engine and it's consuming it. And I think as an investor, when you think about ETH today, it's abstract as an investment. What are you buying when you're buying an ETH token? You're buying like a stake in this protocol and how is it monetized? What valuation characteristics? Hard to think about. But if you say you're buying this gas that powers the internet of finance, and every time you want to do a transaction, someone has to pay in that gas. I just think that's a very intuitive way. It also reduces ETH's inflation. If you think about the Bitcoin halving, that's what I was going to say. A lot of people attribute Bitcoin's run to its halving. This is about half of a halving. <laughs> right. uh, so it will reduce ETH's inflation from 4% a year to about 3% a year, which is a material reduction that no one is talking about. Uh, and then the, the second thing, just to finish, and we can keep going. Uh, next year, we're supposed to evolve ETH. We, I'm not part of ETH. ETH is supposed to evolve. Let's decentralize. Maybe I am. ETH is supposed to evolve <laughs> to ETH 2.0, which everyone's excited about this trend, this move from proof of work to proof of stake, which will move it to a carbon neutral consensus mechanism. But that will reduce the inflation from 3% to 1%. So ETH's inflation rate is going to fall from 4 to 1% over the next 12 months. That's like a halving and a half. Uh, and I think that's a very big deal in terms of the supply demand dynamics. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, and, and I'll just toss in there, like, you know, I think when I was, I mean, first of all, I called Matt an idiot when he made the jump. So I was clearly wrong about that. So, but because of knowing Matt for all these years, like he sends, I read all of this stuff. I have to, it's in the contract. And so I read <laughs> all of his stuff about it. And I went down the Ethereum rabbit hole really tightly and really, you know, with a lot of depth. And um, I actually, I think you're underselling it, right? Because it's easy to look at it and point out all of its flaws. Oh, you could write a, you know, you could write a smart contract network better this way or that way. But the network effects are so profound when we start talking about actual utility, right? Because that's the difference between Ethereum and virtually everything else. Ethereum provides a utile service, 
And that's what's really unique about it and what's different. And that utility is explicitly tied to the size of the network. That's, a, that's something that's very difficult to usurp, right? You can write the better Ethereum version. There's a hundred of them out there. And some of them will find their use cases. They're hyper secure, they're faster, whatever it is. But I don't think anybody's going to step in and, you know, MySpace Ethereum anytime soon. I just, it just doesn't feel like it. And the protocols itself and Solidity and the ways you access it are just elegantly designed from top to bottom, right? So, I mean, to me, this is a case where open source works. Yeah. I mean, the, the key issue with developers right now happens to be the cost of them being able to transact and anybody be able to Gatsby. transact right now, right? Just and then the second thing is, is it's slow, right? So that's going to be dealt with in 2.0 as well. The issue, of course, becomes, from what I gather, that they've been promising you 2.0 for a long time, right? And so yeah. you got the developers kind of holding on, holding on, holding on. And finally, some just splitting off because they got a business to run, right? Going to Cardano or an ADA or wherever, uh, whatever other coin makes sense for them. Um, so it'd be interesting. it's going to be interesting to see if they can deliver on some sort of timely transition for the vast majority of the ecosystem to stay with them, right? I, I, I agree. Risk. I agree. That is the big risk. Yeah. Well, that's, that's super interesting. So you got do your you, second. Well, just, I, I, might, I might just weave in Steve's question. So do you see the correlation sure. between Bitcoin and Ethereum to remain high in the future or continue to decrease? And I wonder if some of the comments that you've made here would would lead you to a conclusion that the correlation may decrease in some way or or not i i laid at your feet to uh, answer it's, it's on the screen there great great question it's definitely well it's definitely i, I shouldn't say that the lawyer just you know kicked me in my head um it may i be. think that it could be it may <laughs> i i think the correlation is likely to decrease over time between all crypto assets but particularly between bitcoin and eth between all crypto assets because the uh sort of industry-wide risk has diminished so much as we discussed and it used to be that that overwhelmed any coin specific utility um, between bitcoin and eth specifically for the reason dave mentioned you know bitcoin as a technology and as an asset is really optimized for the store value use case potentially the transactional use case eth is really optimized as this useful other blockchain and i i do think as we see more utility build in eth uh, the correlation will will drop. They'll still be correlated, like 0 0.7, 0 0.6. Um, but but I, I think they'll be correlated in the same way that that Microsoft and and Salesforce are correlated. Right. Um, that, that, what you were saying triggered something for me in that in this early development nascent field frontier asset class, you're all gonna you're all gonna be together and you're all gonna have very high correlation because. The economic utility that you might provide is going to be overwhelmed by the liquidity in the space. But as the economic utility of the business models that you might provide to different business cases deviates and creates a dispersion, then those business cases are going to provide a definite, a different sort of discounted cash flow or some sort of expected growth in the future that have structural relationships that are different from one another. And thus, you're going to get a proliferation of non-correlation through the space. I think it. I think exactly. it comes down to the the commonality and risk right now in the crypto space, right? It's that lack of uh, fertilizer for a great seed, a great idea. All these seeds require that fertilizer to be set, which is proper regulation, clarity in taxation, banks Liquidity. that are willing to onboard and off offboard. 
you know, as that becomes better and better, now you worry less about the, the, the you know, big uh, Armageddon event and you start worrying about the specific company events, right? That's when we'll, I think we'll start seeing very, very unique uh, diversification in those assets. I agree. I agree. Well said. Love it. Okay, so, so let the, me let me ask you right now. I'm looking at some of the some of the funds and everybody that's in this space and trying to index all this stuff. And you know, we talk a big talk about diversification and market cap, and then you get into it. And currently today, and this is going to change in the future, I'm sure. It's basically like you know, 90% Bitcoin, 5% uh, Ethereum, and then 20 like 0.3s allocations to the other asset classes, right? So, I mean. The idea, the concept is there where we are right now is not necessarily that level of diversification that one would consider. So how how do you see that evolving? Yeah, I th I think it'll ch well I think it's likely to change over time. Yeah, our index is maybe you know sixty five percent Bitcoin, you know thirty percent ETH, and the rest is small assets. Um, I think it will it is likely to change over time. If I were a betting man, I, I bet ETH share will grow, and I bet you'll see some of these DeFi specific ads like Uniswap uh, accrue larger market capitalizations over time. Um, but it is a network effects business. I think the largest will remain the largest. Um, the real advantage of, a, of an index strategy is it doesn't matter how it turns out, right? Like sure. if the Bitcoin maximalists are right, it's all Bitcoin, then the index will be all Bitcoin. If the flippingists for ETH are right, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. Be, then it'll be ETH. flippingists. I had to pause for a minute on that. Um, but I do, I do expect more diversification in that mix over time. I expect Bitcoin's dominance uh, to drop. It's just further along in penetrating its use case than these other assets. Like it's pretty far along the chain of being digital gold, uh, even further than ETH is to being the internet finance. Um, and that's why I think its market cap is as high as it is right now. And let's, can you tell me more? I am really uh, interested in hearing why you think Uniswap is the most compelling entrepreneurial case in your lifetime or whatever you said. Why, why oh, are they so special for you? It's so amazing. So Uniswap, for people who don't know, uh, is a decentralized exchange. You can think of it as a decentralized version of Coinbase where any person can be a liquidity provider. Um, it's trading like $50 billion in trading volume a month and generating a couple hundred million dollars in fees. Uh, there, there, there have been weeks where it trades more than Coinbase, just $60 billion publicly traded company. It has zero employees, zero offices, and zero, uh, no, no CEO. I just find it hard to imagine a startup that didn't exist three years ago that is today generating hundreds of millions of dollars of monthly fees and trading $50 billion in volume is challenging one of the most successful IPOs of all time for trading volume. And is doing so with no employees. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. Well, and, and more to the point, they're sort of like the vanguard in space because the people making all of those fees are the people participating in the process, that, right? That's it's not all just accruing to, you know, Jack. We'll talk Jordan. a little bit more yeah. about that, Dave. <laughs> well, so, I mean, the whole idea, what Matt's talking about is Uniswap is fundamentally just a protocol. It's not a company in the way we would think about it. And as such, it's just a way of enabling these mediums of exchange right there. I, I don't know who was first, but they're the popularized version of the simple liquidity pool, right? It's really one of the first examples I'd ever seen where people stake different assets and you allow the market on some curve to determine whether or not you're booking arbitrage on either side mm -hmm. of it. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally the creation redemption mechanism for ETFs on steroids. 
And, um, you know, it allows people to both create anything they want to trade, any two items they want to trade against each other that can be tokenized, can run through the Uniswap protocol. And the fees that come out of that accrue to anybody who wants to participate, which is a little bit like Vanguard. You know, if you are an SP 500 index investor at Vanguard, you're effectively playing at cost. And to the extent the company happens to be really efficient at it, that cost just keeps going down. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, Vanguard doesn't necessarily pay me to be in that business, but hey, you know what? Add on securities lending revenue, and in fact, a lot of times they do. And so I think Uniswap is a classic case for decentralization actually vanguarding the rest of the financial services industry. Yeah, and I, I'll just add, like, the Uniswap thing really woke up for me. I was talking with uh, the lead trader at one of the top crypto hedge funds in the world. He said he migrated most of his trading to Uniswap because he was getting better prices. So not only is it disruptive in the way that Dave mentioned, but it's disruptive in terms of its ability to deliver prices. Um, I really do think if it was started by, you know, like like two guys from Silicon Valley, they'd be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it just happened to be started by a guy who wears a, a tatty unicorn shirt. Um, and so it doesn't get as much attention as I, I think it should. Right. So these guys are any market participant can go in, find a crypto pair that let's say they own one half of the of the pair they add liquidity as a automated market maker so this is kind of like the idea you're putting your liquidity in and for provide for staking that coin and allowing other people to trade in and out and creating that balance between the two the, the pair you are getting paid while you wait yeah right so That's, there's it's it's and, you're the just, just like any other market the more willing you are to provide liquidity on something that is otherwise a liquid the more money you're going to make so it encourages exactly the kind of risk taking that encourages the, the economies of scale and the network effects we know you need to get to make these things work um, but it also makes it really lucrative for what i would call more traditional institutional market making type activity that's exactly right it also solves a future problem dave you know if you think about in europe you can pay market makers to tighten liquidity spreads on etfs and you can't do that here in the us one challenge when people talk about tokenized ass assets is how you'll have liquidity in this huge fracture of tokenized assets well this is one example if you had a tokenized asset or were supporting an ecosystem you could provide liquidity to jumpstart liquidity in that market in a direct way which you can't do in traditional markets and i think that's that's sort of like an elegant add-on that people haven't even uh, gotten to yet. That's that's exactly the type of innovation that's coming out. And that's only like, you know, the tip of the iceberg in, in so many other ways. It's the best and brightest minds are going in and coming up with use cases. It's very exciting. And I, I how much how much is the regulatory the pushback we're getting being driven by the old guard and their money <laughs> and influence? Not yet. No, now what's happening now? I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to the question. I think it's a sort of a very touchy question, maybe. But how much do we think that the regulatory pushback is driven by the old guard? I, I mean, I think they're pushing for very aggressive regulations. I think I think is the answer to that. Uh, and I do think I do think they're afraid. And I, I will add, there's every risk that regulations are overzealous because they can be story driven and politicized and not based on. Uh, technology, and you see some elements of that. So I do think the old guard, uh, I think some of them are ignoring the crypto and DeFi markets, and I think some of them are worried about it. And I think a vanishing few are embracing it because uh, it still seems too foreign to them. The, the, the good thing is the constituents in the voting base are 
jumping into the boat. And so the influence peddlers will be peddling different influence as the uh, aggregate of voters changes. Anyway. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think, Dave, you, you said that this was adopted by institution and retail. I kind of feel like the adoption is mostly retail. Like retail has really led the zeitgeist here. And a lot of people have it. They are voters. And if the government is going to become again between them and their Bitcoin, it's going to be a problem. Right. And on the DeFi space, people that don't can't get credit cards can get a credit card if you own Bitcoin and like crypto.com will, will be offering something like that. And there's a few places globally that allow you to if you have bad credit to actually be able to participate in traditional markets through through credit cards that are backed by Bitcoin. So all these things that are making things easier for Americans and everybody in the world, you take that away, there's going to be some voter lashback. Uh, I'm taking the under on that one. The American voter is not showing up to kick people out of office because they don't like what their financial regulations (laughs) are. You're missing missing regulation versus wealth accumulation. Like this is the I, opportunity I, will, for them to there wealth will be accumulate. a very small percentage of Americans who are both in crypto and connect those dots. But yes, uh, yeah. yeah. Although you are seeing, you are seeing, sure. uh, you are seeing activity from like the mayor of Miami, from various states, mm, Wyoming, society, Wyoming, parts yeah. of Texas, Texas. Trying to oh. be very pro crypto. I think it's going to be, it's going to happen, and I think there will be a lot of pressure on regulators. I just don't think any of them. I don't think we're going to like have a presidential election lost over a stance on crypto. Right. Regulation. Right. Uh, we'll, well, it'll be it'll be a, it'll be more than you think. I it, think there's it enough might people show up on the yeah. agenda as item thirty-seven down on the fifth plank. It's going to be market. right next to legalizing marijuana, my friend. <laughs> done. Check the box. It's already done. Oh, is that Probably already done? See, the yeah, next the up, crypto. Next, next up. I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. All right. Well, there was we, one there was one earlier question that was a bit technical um mm-hmm. and i didn't want it to disturb the flow but there was uh bob h asked how can in the bitwise 10 why is um ada or cadona included over uh tezos and um with the fork and whatnot i don't know if you can comment on that or uh, if you've i'm not I sure can, you can or can't or what but please I can definitely I can definitely comment on it. Uh, Cardano is included because it has a larger market cap. The criticism that Bob is making that there isn't a lot of development activity on Cardano is accurate and a topic of great conversation in the crypto markets. Um, it checks out as a cryptocurrency from a fundamental and, and as a blockchain from a fundamental sort of technological functioning aspect uh, and and from a security aspect and from an ability to custody asset aspect. So as a market cap weighted index, we just have to take the market's view. Tezos has been a component. Uh, if they're successful, uh, I, I hope they'll be a component in the future. But right now they're outside of it uh, from a market cap perspective. Great. And then, and then one of our, our own uh, beloved um, Richard Latterman asked about that. Well, Cardano's role in DeFi uh, in competing with Ethereum, but probably I think we covered that. <laughs> yeah, it's a slick blockchain, uh, very performant. And the question is if it can come, catch up with Ethereum's, you know, network effects, developer community, brand yeah. and recognition. And that's that's what makes it fun to watch. We'll see. Absolutely. Love, love having a horse race where you've got all the horses in the race. <laughs> exactly. <fantastic. laughs> exactly. 
Well, we've been at this for an hour and 22 minutes, guys. I think I think that's been a great Friday, and I, I really appreciate you you uh, coming joining us. And Dave, co-hosting, you've done a fantastic job. You really keep me away. That. An opportunity to poke yeah. fun at Matt. <laughs> I love it. I love. But before, before we go, first of all, everyone listening, please hit the like button before you go. Share this with somebody, all that good stuff. And then um, I just want to go through for Dave and Matt, where people can find you, any recommended spots that you want them to look at or educate themselves on, et cetera. So maybe Dave hit him first. With- I'm just all in on Twitter at Dave Nodig on Twitter. If, you know, the, you can link to my stuff in the, my profile page there over at ETF Trends. Perfect. Yep. And for me at Matt underscore Hogan, which is H O U G A N. It's got that funny U in it. Uh, or come to bitwiseinvestments.com. Sign up, uh, and I'll send you my my monthly notes from the CIA. Love it. We all know that's where right. Rodrigo's from, so that's fine. That's right. <laughs> I got the worst Twitter handle of all time because all the Rodrigo Gordillos are taken. Rod Gordo P that whatever. Just find me. Just, you know, uh, uh, follow Dave Natig and uh, I'll, I'll be, <laughs> I'll flip into, flip into the stream and then you can find me and tag me there. I love it. <laughs> Happy right, Friday, gents. That was a real pleasure. Thanks for Thank joining you so us. Much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.